Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 3 this morning. Now, last week we began our study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And these historical books are a, they recount rather, the return of God's people to the promised land following their exile in Babylon. So this is about 6th century BC, about 500 years before the birth of Christ. Now for a generation, the people of God had dwelt away from their land, but the Lord was faithful to bring his people back to the land. As we saw last week, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to facilitate and even finance the return of the Jewish people to Israel. And in chapter 2 of Ezra, we saw a list of the many people who took up the call to return. Those who set out on that months-long journey back to their ancestral home. Now, in chapter 3, these pilgrims have made it back home. The exile has come to an end. So what is the first thing that they do? What is the foundation of their new life or their renewed life in the promised land? Well, we can look at verses 1 through 2 and we see it says, When the seventh month came... And the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. When we do the math, it seems as though God's people had only been back a handful of weeks before they gathered in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Growing up in a military family, I know firsthand the disruption of moving. It's difficult and disorienting. You want comfort and predictability. And nothing seems solid. Nothing is given. Everything is new. You have a new home, a new school, new friends, new co-workers, new roads to learn, new restaurants to try out, and new church to go to. It's a time when your identity fills up in the air. And it's not just a move that unsettles us. It's any major change in life, whether we're going to college or getting married or having a child or starting a new job becoming an empty nester or entering retirement, each of these transitions are times when your priorities are tested. And it's in these times that we must return to what is foundational to our lives. The people of God had been called back to Israel for this purpose, to reestablish biblical worship in Jerusalem. This was a part of Cyrus's decree that they would move back and rebuild the temple and offer worship to the one true God. But more than that, it was God's purpose for his people that worship would be their priority. Not building homes or cultivating lands or starting schools, as important as those might be. Their first priority was worshiping God as he had directed them in his word. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins here. We all know the first question and answer, the chief end of man. What is it? 
It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's to worship. But the second question and answer tells us how we are to worship. For it asks, what rule has God given to direct us how we are to glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer is the Word of God contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. In a world that is ever-changing, this must be our solid, unchanging foundation. This must be our priority, our chief end, to worship God as God has directed us to worship Him. And what we will see in our text for this morning is that as we make biblical worship our priority, it will renew our hearts, it will reform our habits, and it will reorient our longings to Christ and to His kingdom. So here now, the word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedat, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. 
For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would instruct us from your word how we might worship you. We pray, O oh Lord, that in obedience to your call for a people that would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we truly, Lord, would be filled with your spirit and would worship you according to your word. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Fear can drive human action unlike any other emotion. My mother experienced this reality at 7.10 p.m. on January 30th, 1995. She was working at the Red Lion Hotel just outside of Seattle, Washington that evening. And suddenly she felt the whole building begin to move. The light fixtures were swaying. The plates on the tables were shaking. It was an earthquake. Now, everyone who grew up in Washington State, as I did, were trained for what we called the big one. I had been told that a major earthquake would hit this area of the Pacific Northwest and it would cause Mount Rainier, a dormant volcano, to erupt. And that this eruption would cause a a major mudslide that would cover the whole area in tens of feet of mud. So if you weren't killed by the earthquake or the volcanic eruption, surely the tsunami of mud would get you. But we had been trained. Don't run. Get under a table or a desk. Brace in a door frame if the big one hits. This will keep you from being hit by falling objects. If you run, you're exposed to all sorts of dangers, including falling objects and broken glass and exposed electrical wires. This wasn't the big one. But it was enough to shake people up emotionally. This earthquake hits, and what does everyone do? They run. Like a herd of cattle, everyone runs to the exit. They scuttle down the emergency stairwell and spill out onto the streets. My mother said that it was unlike anything she had ever experienced before. She knew what she was supposed to do, but when the fear set in, she blindly followed the crowd as they ran out into danger. Fear, it drives us to do the very things we know that we shouldn't do. It makes us vulnerable and susceptible to all sorts of manipulation. Fear can make us angry. It can make us irrational. It can make us dangerous. And therefore, we must make biblical worship our priority. What's the connection? Well, because biblical worship teaches our heart to fear rightly. That is, biblical worship renews our hearts to fear God above all else. As the people of Israel come back into the land, they're not coming to an empty land. 
They're coming to a land that was already filled with people who were antagonistic to their purposes, antagonistic to them moving into the land and establishing biblical worship. And we read that they feared these people who were in the land. Look at verse 3 again. It says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. You see, they were fearful of the people, and therefore they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. They were gripped with fear of man, and therefore they began to worship God, to get their hearts in line. The Word of God teaches us that we are to fear Him and Him alone. When Israel first came to the promised land many generations before, Moses instructed them that they were to assemble the people and that they were to hear the Word of God and to learn to fear the Lord their God. When we gather and worship, we gather to get our fears properly aligned because our heart fears the wrong things we fear man we fear lack we fear disease we fear rejection we fear political upheaval we fear death and when our hearts are not trained to first fear god our lives get all out of order and we run into danger over and over and over again but the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we don't fear Him, then we will act foolishly. But when God's people assemble to worship Him, there our hearts are changed, they are renewed. And the prayer of Psalm 86 is answered that says, Unite my heart, O God, to fear Your name. You see, the people of Israel were in a vulnerable position. They had every reason to be fearful of the people of the land. And this fear could have driven them to act foolishly. They could have returned to Babylon, back to a place they knew. They could have blended in and abandoned biblical worship and abandoned their faith and just got along with those who were around them. They could have tried to form an army and fight against those that they feared. But they knew that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so they made biblical worship their priority. They rebuilt the altar of sacrifice and began worshiping God as God had instructed them. And Christians, so too must we. We need to have our hearts changed, united to fear the name of God. If worship is not our priority, then we will foolishly fear something other than God. But we come each week to the altar of God, not to sacrifice bulls and goats as they did in the past, but rather to remember the once and for all sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. To remember that by His death our guilt has been removed. To have our hearts renewed by the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To look to the altar of sacrifice upon which the Lamb of God was offered and to be reminded again that the sting of death has been removed. To look to the resurrection and come yet again to the truth that we who are in Christ are no longer slaves to the fear of death. But through Christ-centered biblical worship, our hearts have been united to fear God alone. 
You see, we must make biblical worship our priority because without it we will fear all the wrong things. But when it is our priority, our hearts will be united to fear God alone. A few years back, I read this book called The Power of Habit. And one of the most interesting aspects of the book was how habits inform our behavior without us even realizing it. A case study expressed this truth. It focused on this man who had lost all ability to form new memories. This gentleman was studied and observed for several years because of the insights he provided on human behavior. And what they found was that while he couldn't form any new memories, he could form new habits. That is, he couldn't tell you where the peanut butter was in the kitchen, but when he was hungry, he knew how to get to the kitchen, get the peanut butter, and make himself a sandwich. He couldn't give you directions to his house, but he could take a walk around the block and easily find his way back home. He had no clue where the restroom was in his house, But when he needed it, he went straight to it. You see, habits are these patterns of behavior that are formed by repetition. The first several times I drove to Timberlake, where my daughter goes to school, I needed to follow the GPS. There's like 20 turns to get to Timberlake. Now I've done it for so many years and so many times that I can drive it effortlessly. I don't even know what I'm doing. It's a habit. I can look up and think, how did I get here? Because it's a pattern of behavior that directs us where we go. And the next thing that we see in our text is that we must make biblical worship our priority because it reforms our habits. Look down at verse 4. We read, as they begin to institute biblical worship, it says they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. You see, the Word of God establishes a pattern or a cycle of worship that the people were called to follow. You had annual feasts, these annual feasts that people would gather together in Jerusalem. But they also had these monthly new moon offerings. They had weekly Sabbath and they had daily offerings. And all of these were meant to make the story of redemption the habit of God's people. The Feast of Booths that is spoken of here was one of the three major annual feasts of God's people. It was a commemoration of the 40 years of wilderness wandering that followed Israel's exodus from Egypt. And what they would do is they would gather in Jerusalem and they would set up these tents or these booths and they would camp out for a week to be reminded of how the Lord had been faithful to care for them in their time of need. Could you imagine? You have just traveled months and months to come to Israel. And then almost immediately, you leave your new home to go on this week-long camping trip. The message could not be any clearer. 
You are dependent upon the Lord to care for you whether you are traveling or whether you're in your home. God is the one who will care for you in this world. But if worship is not the priority, then this message is not heard. And the habits of self-reliance and pride set in. We need to hear and live out the same story of redemption over and over and over again. We need our habits to be reformed and aligned with God's work so that when life is difficult and confusing, we naturally fall into the truth of God's redemptive work on our behalf. That is to say we need our habits to lead us to Christ. For all the sacrifices and festivals were preparing God's people for the coming of Christ. They were cutting the same path, walking that same path over and over and over and over again, preparing God's people to live out the story of redemption that finds its fulfillment at the cross. When we lived in Charlotte during seminary, we moved apartments a handful of times. And it was always a challenge not to drive back to my old apartment. I know you've experienced this before. Right? I would get out of class. My head would be filled with all of these lectures. I'd be tired from the day. I would get in my car and I would just naturally start driving the path I was used to driving and end up halfway to our old apartment before realizing what was happening. And the question is, where do your habits lead you? Do they lead you to trusting in yourself? In your money, your talents, your righteousness, do your habits reveal that your body is your God? Do your habits lead to you to food or drink or drugs or sex when you are weak? Or do your habits naturally lead you to Christ? You need to make biblical worship your priority because when you are weak and you are in need and you are in trouble and you are dependent, you will follow the path that you have tread over and over and over again. And the path that God has ordained for His people is to come week in and week out to worship Him. To make the Lord's day the priority of your life. To sing His glory to confess your sins, to hear the message of forgiveness, to praise the Lord for His grace, to learn from His Word, to offer your life, to be sent out with His blessing. These are the habits that you need to form in your life. You see, we must make biblical worship our priority because it reforms our habits to lead us to Christ. Chapter 3 ends with probably the the most well-known scene in the book of Ezra. Following their initial worship, the people of Israel make provision to rebuild the foundation of the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they had sacked Jerusalem. And in verse 11, we pick up with what happens when they come to dedicate this new foundation of the temple. We read there in verse 11, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. 
You see, the old men who had known and worshipped in Solomon's temple wept at the sight of the new temple foundation. Why? Well, there are a few reasons that we can see in the text. First, the temple that was built was not the same in size and scope and glory as the old temple. The glory of what had been was not replicated. And so they wept. Second, the new temple reminded them of all that they had experienced over this generation. Violence and hardship. And as the temple foundation is laid, all of these memories come back. And finally they wept because the temple seemed to be only a shadow of the promises that God made concerning life in the promised land following the exile. There are promises that the nations would come streaming into Jerusalem after the exile to see this glorious temple. They were told that the lion was going to lie down with the lamb. There were these promises that disease and hardship and war would be ended. And this mix of joyful shouts and weeping is the third reason we must make biblical worship our priority. Because it reorients our longings. Biblical worship is meant to be a foretaste of our heavenly existence that is to come. As we gather with God's people and sing God's praise, it's meant to give us an experience of heaven here on earth. And we should long for this foretaste. We should desire to gather with God's people week in and week out and sing the praises of God. And there are times when we are worshiping the Lord when I feel that I've been transported into the very presence of God Himself. On Easter Sunday when the sanctuary is full and we're standing at the communion table and we sing, I am the bread of life. I want to shout for joy. It's one of the most glorious times in all the year. But biblical worship is still only a foretaste. It is not the real and full reality of enjoying God that you will have one day when Christ returns and establishes His eternal kingdom. And that means that there are times when we gather with God's people and we are disappointed in the experience. There are times when worship does not fulfill every longing and desire that your soul has. Sin is still a reality. You're filled with sinful and selfish desires that keep you from worshiping God rightly. And everyone that you are with in this room is still struggling with sin. There are people in the church that you don't get along with. There are people that you struggle to understand. People that might just be outright mean to you and you just don't know how to reconcile with. Disease and death are still a reality. We gather to worship and there are saints that are missing. There are loved ones who can't make it because they are sick. There are husbands and wives and fathers and mothers who have died and are not physically present with us as they will be on the day of the resurrection. And error and weakness are still realities. There's no perfect church out there. I see this false expectation play itself out as people fail to get deeply involved in a body of Christ because they have an expectation of what church should be that is so high that no church on earth would ever be able to fulfill it. 
There is a sense that church should fulfill every longing. All of your boxes must be checked. And so you are constantly disappointed. The community isn't friendly enough. So we need to go somewhere else that has better community. The music isn't engaging enough. We need to find somewhere else to worship. The sermons are too long, too theological, too convicting, too shallow, too boring. There's always a reason not to make biblical worship your priority. Because it's not giving you what you want. And yes, there are times. When you'll be taken up in rapturous emotion and shout for joy. But there are also times when worship leaves you longing for something more. And that is the way that it is supposed to be. Because biblical worship is a foretaste of what is to come. It should fill you with hope and joy. And it should fill you with longing and anticipation for what is to come. You need to make biblical worship your priority because you need to experience both of these emotions in the context of the church. You need to be filled with what God has already accomplished on your behalf and you need to long for what has not yet come. Even the new heaven and the new earth where disease and pain and death and sin are no more, and where we will finally and fully be satisfied in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. I know that we have all heard the illustration about fitting the large rock into the jar. I know that you've all heard that because it was in the preparing for the Lord's Day. And I know you all read it faithfully. But if you haven't, there's this illustration about how a professor laid out on a table all these various objects, a large rock, some pebbles, some sand, and some water, and a glass jar. And he said, how can all of this fit into this jar? And to get all of it in there, of course, we know you have to begin with the large rock. Because if you put the pebbles and sand in first, then the rock won't fit in. You can't get it in there. But if you put the large rock in first then everything else will fit because you put in the rock and then you put the pebbles in and shake them down and they come all around the large rock. Then the sand, you shake it down and it fits in all the cracks and then finally you pour the water on top. When the rock goes in first, everything else finds its proper place. And worship of God must be the large rock priority of your life. It needs to be the non-negotiable around which everything else in your life fits. Because if anything else goes in first, you're never going to be able to shove that rock down in there. You may try to make it fit, but all the less important aspects of your life will take over. But when you begin with Christ-centered, God-glorifying worship, everything else in your life will find its proper place. Your heart will learn to fear Christ alone. Your habits will lead you to Christ alone. And your longings will be for Christ alone. The foundation of a home will determine its ability to withstand the storms of life. So build your house upon the rock because the storms will come and those who build on the rock of biblical worship will not be shaken.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come to you now in this time. And we pray, O Lord, that you would renew our hearts to fear your name. We pray, O God, that you would reform our habits, that they might lead us to Christ. And we pray, O God, that you would reorient our longings, that we would not look to be satisfied here by things that are on earth, but only by Christ in his coming kingdom. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.